Titus. I please have your Bibles open to the book of Titus as we look at our passage together. And I'd just like to extend a warm welcome to all the visitors we have and also those joining us online. As we come now to um, our passage together, let's open up now in prayer. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this series that we've been able to look at. Father, I pray, Lord, as we look at Titus chapter 3 today, Lord, that you would be with us. Lord, I pray that you will remove any distractions that we have, whether we are sitting here in this room or sitting online and watching online. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be attentive to your word and, Lord, to be learning and growing from your word. Uh, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach from your word now. Please bless the preparation I've done. Help me now to speak clearly. Help me now to speak powerfully. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout our sermon series, we have been told that we need to live godly lives. That you and I have been profoundly shaped and changed and transformed by the gospel. To no longer live like the culture around us, but instead live self-controlled, pure, upright, temperate, and respectable lives. Uh, we know that this is easier said than done. So if it is easier said than done, what makes it so hard to live godly lives? I think the problem is that we can easily forget. We forget what it means to live gospel-shaped lives. We forget what transformed us, namely the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we've forgotten what Christ has done for us, but perhaps we're not embracing the gospel like we once did. We aren't treasuring the message that so profoundly changed us. We no longer see it as our greatest joy. Why does this happen? Our one suggestion is that we can easily get distracted. You and I are being constantly bombarded by a number of things that are wanting our attention. And we focus on other things. Other things that we deem good and worth our time and energy. And so we can forget. We forget to live gospel-shaped lives. Uh, the question I have is, why do we need to live gospel-shaped lives? Why do we need to be godly? Our Paul's big message from the book of Titus is to live godly lives because that's what you're going to be. You are going to be godly perfectly. So I think it's this reason, for this reason, friends, that Paul dedicates so much of chapter 3 in reminding us what the gospel is and how Christ has profoundly changed us. Paul reminds us to live godly lives. The main idea for our passage today is that the gospel propels us to godliness. And I have three points for us today. Our first point, the gospel propels us to godly engagement. Second, the gospel propels us to godly hope. 
And third, the gospel propels us to godly works. Let's have a look at that first point together. The gospel propels us to godly engagement. As we live in the community where we have been placed, we are to do two things. First, to submit to authorities and rulers. And second, to do good by those around us. Let's have a look at chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. In the book of Titus, Paul has expressed the culture around Titus. The culture is godless. It is filled with people who seek to satisfy themselves. And for the sake of satisfying themselves, they will exploit those around them. If you were a member of Titus's church, you would have been feeling up until this point, let's separate from the state. Let's not engage with the community around us, but let's become a community unto ourselves. After all, those around us are deceptive. They are prone to getting drunk. They are violent. They are living such ungodly lives. In such a scenario, it would be easy for the Christian to forget that Christ is both the head of the church, but also the head of the state. This is why Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Why? Because Christ has established the government, and he has established the government for our good. Uh, this, is our, this is how our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, puts it from chapter 23.1. Let me read for us. Our confession says, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Our Lord Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, we must submit to our government. We are told to pray for our government, even to desire to enter into politics because our Lord Jesus is head of the state. However, just because we are told to submit to authorities, we don't do this blindly. Our government is not perfect. And just like the rest of humanity, they are tainted by sin. So if the government commands us to do what Christ has forbidden, or commands us not to do as Christ has told us to do, has commanded us to do, then we must obey God rather than our human authorities. But we are told where possible and as far as possible that we are to submit to our governing authorities. This means pay taxes. This means following the rules and laws laid down by a government made for the benefit of society. The gospel propels us to godly engagement within our community, so we are to submit to our authorities. And the gospel propels us to godly engagement by doing good to those around us. 
as we live in the community we have been placed. Paul says we are to engage with our society by doing good. Have a look at verse 2, where Paul tells us to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. There will always be people who are hostile and even aggressive towards Christians. And it would be so easy for the church to retaliate, to fight fire with fire towards those who are hostile. That when people use harsh words against us, we would use harsh words in kind. Paul tells us, though, that we are to interact with those around us, not by being harsh, but by being loving. We are to show those around us how the gospel has changed us. The gospel has trained us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. The gospel has trained us to live godly lives. This means avoid slander, quarrels, fighting fire with fire. We are told rather to be gentle, to be kind to all people. So Paul is saying as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go shopping, as you eat out in restaurants, when you go to the hairdresser, let your interactions be shaped by the gospel. Let your conversations be godly. But why? Why should we be godly and show kindness to those around us, the ungodly, those who will belittle, exploit, and even deceive us? Well, this brings us to our second point. Point number two, the gospel propels us to be godly. I find Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, one of the clearest summaries of the gospel message. Look how Paul describes how we once were from verse 3. Have a look with me. Paul says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Uh, We too were once like those ungodly cretins. We too were once like the ungodly culture around us. Because of our sinfulness, what we deserved, uh, what we should expect is God's punishment. But what happened? God happened. Have a look at verses 4 to 6 and the beautiful reminder of what Christ has done for us. Verse 4 and 6 say this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. While we were once living ungodly lives, God took the initiative. God took the initiative in saving us. Why did God do this? Why did God want to save us? Sinful, ungodly us. Was it because of any good in us? Was it any good that we were going to do? What does our passage say? 
Our passage says this. He saved us not because of any righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. The gospel is entirely Christ's work. To say that we added in some way to our salvation would diminish the awesome work which Christ has done for us. The only thing that you and I brought to the table is our ungodly, sinful lives, which Christ saved and redeemed through His work on the cross. What Christ does here is that He takes the sinner into the courtroom and declares them not guilty. That on the cross, Christ took our punishment. And as we stand before Christ on His judgment seat, He declares you right before the Father. He says, not guilty. And not only does Christ save us and declare us not guilty, and removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, He then equips us to be godly. Christ saved us from the punishment of sin. But He's also saving us from the pollution of sin. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And friends, this isn't a one-time deal. The process of sanctification is an ongoing operation. This is how Louis Burkhoff defines sanctification. He says, Sanctification is fundamentally and primarily a divine operation in the soul, whereby the holy disposition born in regeneration is strengthened and its holy exercises are increased. When we embrace the gospel, when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit profoundly changed us. We were reborn and renewed. But that same Holy Spirit is continuing to renew us. The Holy Spirit continues to wash us and give us a deeper understanding of what Christ has done and is doing in our lives. The Holy Spirit in many ways has become our personal trainer, training us to remove that excess weight of sin and to live a life focused on serving Christ. As we read God's Word and we are shaped by the Holy Spirit, we are being trained to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. We are being trained to live gospel-transformed lives. And the good news of what Christ has done doesn't stop there. Have a look now at verse 7, where Paul says, So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. To become an heir, to become an adopted child of God is such a gift. And the imagery of adoption is so much more sweeter than that of justification or sanctification. Uh, With justification, we are in the courtroom and the judge declares us not guilty. With sanctification, uh, we are in the gym, the Holy Spirit training us to live godly lives. But with adoption, we have been welcomed into the family home, a place of comfort. When Christ saves us, we're able to call God Abba, Father, 
And not only can we call God Father, Christ gives us a whole new family. He gives us the church. Uh, when we couldn't come to church for those three months while we were meeting online because of the COVID restrictions, uh, we longed to be able to see one another again. And when we were able to see each other physically, there was such joy. I remember seeing one of our members brought to tears, unable to put into words the joy she had been, she felt being surrounded by her brothers and sisters in Christ. At last, being able to meet again. But as we meet here on a Sunday, and as we gather as a church to worship our great God, this is only a shadow of what Jesus has secured for us. For each of us eagerly awaits being brought finally into our Father's home. Each of us eagerly awaits the day when we'll be able to stand in the presence of our great God and Father. We'll be able to worship Him without any sin or distraction. As we met online, I longed for the day when we could meet together face to face. But what I really long for, what I really long for is to be gathered before the Father. I eagerly await the day when we will fully secure the hope that Christ has promised us, the gift of eternal life. Oh, the gospel message is more than just being declared not guilty. It's more than just being washed and changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the gospel includes what Paul describes as receiving that crown of glory and being in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, come share in your master's happiness. And this is the good news. This is the good news which propels us to godliness. This is the good news which propels us to good works. It is the hope of eternal life. We now come to our third point. Our third point is the gospel propels us to godly works. Have a look now at verse 8. Verse 8, Paul says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Titus is to continue to stress the gospel, the gospel which trains us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, the gospel which trains us to live godly lives. And through stressing, and reminding the people what the gospel means and what Christ has done for us. A natural outcome would be devoting our lives to godly living, to good works. But what is the good that Paul is referring to? Well, I think our answer can be found in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Have a look with me what Paul says in Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, the hope of eternal life. 
Paul's mission, his task which God has given him, is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth in the hope of eternal life. That people would live godly lives because that's what they'll be. Godly. Paul was to declare the gospel. He then appoints Titus to put in order what was left unfinished, to make sure that the gospel was promoted and defended, that it would be proclaimed in the church, that whole households would be changed and transformed by the gospel, and that they would live godly lives. That the church would not become a community unto themselves, but a community that would promote Christ what Christ has done through living gospel-shaped lives. The good work that Paul is referring to is that the gospel would be proclaimed and lives transformed. This is our mission, to proclaim the gospel, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. We proclaim this message in the church, and we proclaim this message to those around us. Francis of Assisi, a friar and preacher in the 13th century, said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Paul instructs the Christian to engage in godly works, in good works, and as we embrace the gospel, a natural outcome would be to live godly lives. And then Paul tells us in verse 9 to 11, he instructs the Christian to avoid certain traps that would prevent us from doing these good works. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. In Crete, there were those who were causing the church to be distracted through urging them to engage with genealogies and things about the law. What were these controversies involving genealogies? Well, it's not 100% clear. But one commentator has suggested that Jewish Christians were distracting the church through arguing about family trees. Uh, Even though it isn't 100% clear what they were arguing about, what we do know is that these people were distracting the church from gospel work. Through foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law, these people were causing division. Now, does this mean that the Christian should avoid debating with one another and entering into robust discussions with non-Christians? No. Christians should be engaging with others, seeking to grow and mature the church. We are to further the church and see each other grow in godliness in the hope of eternal life. But what should, what, um, what debates should the Christian avoid? What topics are devices and distract us from furthering the faith and leading people to godliness? How does the Christian know if the topic they are dealing with is then worth pursuing as they engage with others? 
Well, I think Paul gives us two criteria from chapter 1, verse 1. Two criteria that we need to be asking ourselves as we engage with either the Christian or the non-Christian. The first is, is what I'm about to engage with going to further the faith? In other words, as I engage with the non-Christian, am I going to be engaging with the person to win them to Christ? Am I going to show them the love and kindness of Christ, the same love that my Lord and Savior Jesus showed me? Am I going to model and speak the gospel as I interact with them? If I'm not prepared to do these things, then I'm not seeking to further the faith. As I engage in debate with a non-Christian, I'd be rather seeking to win an argument if I weren't doing these things. And Paul says, don't do it. Paul says, avoid doing this, for it is unprofitable and useless. The second criteria that Paul gives us is that when we engage with someone, we're going to ask ourselves, are we going to lead them, lead this person to godliness? That if you engage, as you engage with the brother and sister in Christ, is it going to encourage them? Is it going to spur them to godly living? Is it going to encourage them to further the faith and to seek others come to a saving faith? If we aren't seeking to build our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're seeking to tear them down. And Paul says, don't do it. Paul says, avoid doing this, for it is unprofitable and useless. Brothers and sisters, we need to avoid such foolish things, for to engage with them would distract us from what Christ has called us to do. Seeking to build and mature his church. Paul tells us in verses 10 and 11 that if we see someone in the church seeking to cause division, seeking to distract the church, then we are to warn them. We are to correct them. We are to do this with the intention, as Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 13, so that they will be sound in faith. He says, do this once, do it a second time. Then after that, it have nothing more to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As a church, we are to engage with our community and those within the church. We are to do this with the purpose of furthering the faith and growing those around us in godliness. So Paul stresses the importance of engaging in good works. The gospel propels us to godliness. And then in verses 12 to 15, Paul gives us his final instructions. And in verse 14, Paul wants to hammer home the urgencies of Christians devoting ourselves to doing good works, especially those in urgent need. Paul wants us, his church, to engage with good works, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life. Friends, let me end with this. Living godly lives is easier said than done. But as we embrace the gospel, 
as we make living out the gospel in our lives our priority. Godly living will be a natural outcome. The good works we've been called to do is to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you so much for this time. Oh, thank you for uh, this series in Titus that we've been able to do over these last three weeks. Our Father, we pray now that you would help us to embrace the gospel. Our Father, help each of us to live godly lives changed and transformed by the gospel. Help us, your church, to further the faith of your elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life. Our Father, we pray that you would equip your church by your Holy Spirit to do this. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.